Hey, let me quickly tell you, if you guys, uh, if you haven't had any kind of general information just about the Palong, uh, just brought a little uh, brochure, a little flyer here that tells you a little bit about them, and uh, you, can, you can distribute those if you'd like. I also have a couple different cards. One is from the church that I work, out, uh, work at currently, and you're welcome to um, grab some of these cards and then also for our Palong team. Yeah, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, uh, so much for your son, Jesus. And um, God, we are humbled, Lord, that we could be a part of your great plan to redeem mankind, Lord. And Father God, the grace that you extended to us, Lord, we don't take that for granted, Lord. We understand that it comes with a commission. And that, Father God, the grace that you've been given us is the grace that we extend to others. And so, Father God, um, people are desperately looking for hope. And Father God, we have it within our hearts, Lord God. Let us not remain silent. God, I pray that you would stir within our hearts, Lord God, a greater affection for the things of, of you, of your word. And Father God, may that word change our lives, God, and give us a greater passion because it's your passion, Lord, to make your name great among the nations. Lord, thank you for these people. God, I thank you so much that we can be brothers and sisters in Christ, ambassadors, Lord God, proclaiming Christ and admonishing all. Uh, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, I am very, very thankful that each of you are here, uh, and uh, I pray that if within the next few moments that you can just catch a glimpse of just some of the things that we've encountered overseas in our work with the Palong people. And, um, but I just want to sh- open up just by sharing a little bit about uh, ourselves, and I say ourselves, um, speaking of my family, my wife, and my kids, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, and they've grown a little bit, so... But uh, my family, uh, at the time we left, we only had four kids. We actually had two kids on the field. Uh, but let me just introduce you to my family. Uh, forget this guy right here. Uh, this, is, this is my wife, Sarah. Um, and we've been married 19 years now. Our oldest daughter, Abigail, um, who is now almost 18 years old. Uh, James Hudson, 16. Grant, 15. Uh, Jane Ellen, over on the end there, 14. Kate, who's 11. And Evie, who is 5. And... Uh, this is, uh, this is a, a beautiful family. We took this picture right before we left Thailand, and uh, they're currently in Oklahoma. And so that's why, they, matter of fact, they left before I came here, and I forgot my toothbrush, I forgot my deodorant, I forgot my cord to charge my computer. So without my wife, I'm just a mess, basically. Um, oh, goodness. Just lost that. See what I'm saying? I mean, it just... See if it pops back up here. There it goes. Um, yeah, so let me, let me just tell you a little about myself. We've served with the International Mission Board for the past 13 years. Uh, when we left, uh, we were charged uh, with developing and implementing a strategy to reach the Palong, of which we had never gone, of which we had never heard. Uh, we certainly didn't know their language or culture. Matter of fact, I really don't think uh, I knew where Thailand was on the map before I left, which uh, shows you a little bit about uh, my uh, geogra- geographical uh, education. Uh, either that or I was just asleep during the class. Uh, but like all of us, I think, uh, um, you know, we, we hear stories, we hear and see things about what God is doing all around the world. Um, you know, but until you're there, you just don't understand it. How many of you have been on an international mission trip? So almost everyone. You've had the experience and you've seen it with your eyes, and that does something to your heart. Uh, it, it exposes you to a need that you've never really seen before. And before we left, I can remember just thinking to myself, God, I'm just a student pastor. Um, you know, who am I that you would use uh, in this kind of context overseas? Uh, I, 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 I don't, I've never studied another language before. Uh, I'm not familiar with all the methodologies and strategies and reaching, uh, but God allowed me to see little glimpses here and there of him moving uh, over the wor- you know, all over the world, and through even just seeing it in Scripture, the vast need of people who needed the gospel uh, stirred within my heart. It piqued an interest. And as I began studying and just looking through Scripture and just seeing the Apostle Paul uh, and his desire to take the gospel to the nations and wanting to go to Spain, who have never heard, and, and, um, and utilizing the local church to do so, uh, there, there was a desire that I thought, God, I want to go. Um, but we began to get comfortable. My wife, we had four kids at the time, five, four, three, and two. Um, we, didn't, we didn't really want to go. Uh, we'd gotten to a point where we said, God, you know, there's this tension in our hearts. We feel it. Uh, but God, there's a little bit of fear. 
um, you know, what's going to happen? And we realize that the call is not just for me, but when you've got a family, the call then impacts both your wife and your kids. And it's part of the call uh, to missions. Uh, when he calls you, you have to count the cost. And that cost included uh, your kids. It included your wife. God, what were we to do? Um, and uh, I, as a father and as a protector, as a leader of my home, you know, I was concerned about that. Um, but uh, did I believe and take God at his word? And was I going to be obedient? Um, and of course, that decision was not just mine. Uh, I wanted my wife to share the same calling. And uh, my wife will tell you the story that uh, at one point she was, she, uh, she said she had to get away from the kids. And so she went to the garage and she sat on this riding lawnmower, you know, and that was the only place that she could go to get away from the four little kids running around. And uh, she said she went into that garage uh, ardently resistant to the call of God on her life. And she left that after spending time with the Lord in the word, passionately wanted to go. And only God can do that to a housewife who has four little kids and have heard stories of her sister living on the mission field and all the struggles and trials and tribulations. Um, and, uh, and both of us began the process with the International Mission Board uh, because we're Southern Baptists and, and we had heard some great things about the International Mission Board as the sending agency of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, um, and so I, we can remember the day that we received a stack about this big of unreached people groups all over the world. And, uh, and we thought, okay, Lord, literally, where in the world do you want us to serve? We're called. We want to go. We've already committed our lives. But God, where do you want us to go? And, um, and one of the job requests was of the Palong people. The first time I'd ever seen the name before, even heard of them. Uh, but I can remember one phrase in there, and it said this. It said that these people uh, is the animistic hill tribe who lives in the mountains and the hills of China, Myanmar, and Thailand, and currently are unengaged with the gospel. That was exactly what was on the job request. And, um, and we kind of tucked that away. We know, we know that we wanted to go to the 1040 window at that time, uh, which was this area, um, you know, that, w- that contained the majority of the unreached people groups in the world. Now they would say unengaged, unreached people groups, UUPGs. Um, we wanted to go where the gospel was not made. No, we didn't want to build upon another man's foundation like the Apostle Paul said. And so it narrowed our stack. And, uh, and the Palong stood out. Well, I was reading in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, and uh, came to verse in uh, verse six, and it said, "My sheep have wandered through the mountains and the hills, yet no one has gone looking for them. No one has gone searching for them." And I remember that phrase in that job request. Uh, and and this is how God's word leads you, right? This is the confidence. And I'll tell you, during some dark, dark days on the mission field, where you felt isolated and lonely and spiritually oppressed. And you had a lack of joy because you, you weren't, you didn't have this great corporate community. You were the only believer in an area that was filled with Buddhists and animists. Um, I remember that call. And it gave me the confidence that what God called me to, God could also sustain and enable. And, uh, and so we packed up our family on the first plane ride over there. I mean, we just, it, it was a county struggle after struggle after struggle. First plane ride over there. I remember sitting, and it was one of those moments, you know, the, the people on the plane, they see this family with four kids coming in, they're like, oh my goodness, I have to sit by this family for another 13 hours, you know, uh, because I had young kids, you know, I think they're going to be crying the whole time, you know, and, and we thought they were going to be crying the whole time, and, um, you know, and our kids were sitting there, they turned down the lights, you know, it was, a, it was about that time where everybody was supposed to go to sleep, and of course, my kids were wide awake, and so dad's wide awake, mom's wide awake, can't get an ounce of sleep on the plane, uh, these are just the practical realities. And uh, my young, one, of my, one of my older daughters was sitting on the, on the uh, aisle seat, and apparently a gentleman on the other side had handed her a lifesaver, and the lifesaver got lodged in her throat. And so she started just drooling. She was gasping for breath. And so, man, Dad, I mean, I, I, I got her on the aisle, and I was doing a Heimlich on her. And I, it felt like an eternity in about, probably about 15 seconds. But uh, all I heard was this, Dad, it's already out, you know? <laughs> And I mean, I was just going to town on a Heimlich, you know, and I thought, oh, this is, this is the beginning of my missions experience. You know, the first night in the hotel, I get this phone call at three o'clock in the morning by the front desk. Uh, uh, sir, sir, you have two boy, uh, two boy riding up, down elevator. I mean, three o'clock in the morning, they had gotten out of their bed. We were in joining, adjoining rooms. They had walked out of the room as a four and three-year-old first night there. 
I had heard horror stories of human trafficking and all this stuff, you know, and, and I go out there, and here's my boys in their Scooby-Dooby underwear, you know, riding <laughs> up and down the elevator, you know, just clicking buttons, you know, and just having the time of their life. Uh, and, uh, you know, getting, getting deathly sick the first two weeks because of the change of culture, altitude, and food, and uh, you're just exhausted. Um, these, these are just some of the realities. And, Eric, you've been overseas many times before, and, and you, you experienced some of these things. Uh, and I can remember the very first six months, I mean, just feeling uh, overwhelmed uh, at the inadequacy. And here's, here was the reality for me. And I, I'm giving you this picture because this is life, right? We hear the wonderful stories of, uh, of God moving, and we'll get there because that, that is true. Um, but there are some real, real struggles just personally that you go through. And uh, just feeling the sense of, of, uh, of lostness, of a sense of real purpose, but no purpose at all. Uh, I, here I was, I had all this seminary education and background and training and experience in church life and all the expository preaching, everything, and yet I couldn't even say my first name, much less the gospel, you know, in their language. And so, God, what am I doing here, you know? And uh, it takes time to learn the language. It took seven years for us to see, personally, sharing the gospel for somebody to come and accept Christ. Seven years. Um, and I feel like I'm in good company with that because that that that's how long it took Adoniram Judson to see his, his, his first convert. So if AJ can do it, you know, I mean, I can do it too, you know. But, um, you know, I can remember just feeling at that six to eight month time for where, where, um, where culture shock sets in and you realize that you're there for the long haul. Uh, with the International Mission Board, you have to remain on the field for the first four years before you can go back one time to the United States. And we had a real longing, just a missing and yearning for our family and friends. Uh, and it, um, it was a very real sense where you just wrestled with the call of God upon your life. And again, going back to that scripture saying, yes, God, you called me here. Uh, it is firm, it is settled. And, uh, and God, we know that you will enable us to get through these difficult times language and culture during the first five years of our lives just doing those those studies ethnographic surveys demographic studies linguistic surveys trying to build partners with locals and with stateside churches as well and thus began some of our relationships with local churches i'll talk about in a second um but there were some there were some real there were some real challenges the very first year as i mentioned last night some of the geographical spiritual political and cultural challenges of engaging the Palong. Again, my task as the team strategy leader for the Palong was to develop and implement a strategy to reach the Palong. Well, here were 1.1 million people um, that live in three different countries, most of which live in areas that you can't even have access to. So you're asking yourself the question, how am I going to reach a people that I can't even meet? I can't even get to physically. Um, and if I did get to them, they're unreached for a reason. I mean, they, they, they don't live in the valleys. It makes it easy. They live high along the ridges of, of the mountains, uh, some high mountains, some shorter mountains, but along the ridges. And so just getting to them is, is difficult. From where I lived in Chiang Mai, I had to take, let's see, one, two, three, three plane rides. And then I had to take an eight-hour trip taxi ride to a local city and then a five and a half hour jeep ride up to uh, the town around which they lived and from there you hiked out three to four hours just to get to the first village and so you're thinking okay you know this is this is difficult number one it took two days just to get to them you know with all the timing issues and and everything like that uh, and this was this was the heart of Palong culture now, even in Kalaw, matter of fact, where we went to, um, you know, you still have to trek out there. If you can get a motorcycle or something like that uh, out to some of these villages, boy, you're praising the Lord. Uh, but most of the time, trekking. Uh, other villages, uh, the government won't even allow you to sleep in the village as they do around Kalaw. Most of the village, matter of fact, Kalaw may be the only town around which you can sleep in the villages because it's a tourist attraction. It was one of the old uh, British hill stations. Um, and, um, and so the, the British would go up there and the, the cool, and it has cool weather during the summer and they would just enjoy um, themselves there. But uh, there were some real, real challenges. And so uh, just asking myself, God, okay, Father, how can we reach these people with the gospel? That's what I came for. That's what I, hung, I hunger for. I long to see them know you, Father. And um, we had a couple of different teams come out, volunteer teams from different churches that we were forming partnerships with. 
and uh, man, great churches, churches like Hoffmantown as well, and I got to know uh, for the very first time Emre and Carol and Curtis and Stacy Brickley and some of the other uh, folks from this church, and the, the relationship there has been phenomenal, and God has used this church in incredible ways. Um, there were about, at the time, uh, eight other churches that we were forming partnerships with as well, but they, I felt like they were never being utilized in a strategic way. Um, and, and they were coming over, and they were fulfilling the, the task of evangelizing and discipling, but I felt like uh, after they had left, that it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really continuing. And, um, and so while they were there, yes, it was great, but then when they left, it was done. And, uh, and after my teammates had left, they came for two to three years. Then it was just us again, and we lived in Thailand. We had nobody in Burma. Uh, we had tried in 2008 to get to the country uh, of Burma and live in the city of Kalal. We had a house rented. We had a non-governmental organization that we were developing soap for, um, soap for lice and scabies for the monks that lived in the monasteries. It was a real need, and, a, uh, and we made it from local products. Uh, we made these big earth tanks out of the local soil, um, and, um, and it was a, a great work. The government uh, stamped their approval on it, and we were a month away from moving in, um, but they called us and said, listen, we're shutting down the NGO. Uh, well, that just crushed our dreams. We wanted to live among the people. Uh, but again, this presence issue was very difficult, and, uh, and so we had to stay in Thailand. We moved a little bit further north because we discovered that because of some of the political um, challenges that, that, were, uh, that were being faced there. We knew that the government since 1962 was a military dictatorship, and so the military uh, controlled the country, and, um, and they had a very big interest in this area called the Golden Triangle. Uh, it was the second largest producer of opium in the world, 269,000 square miles that, uh, that was just ripe with opium fields, drug refineries all along the border of Myanmar and Thailand. Uh, the house, matter of fact, that we lived in in the northern part of Thailand was along uh, a major drug thoroughfare that went all the way down to Bangkok. Drugs just ravaged the land, and in the wake of, of, of drugs and, and you know, subsequently alcohol, you just saw so much uh, social damage, uh, families uh, destroying themselves, suicides, uh, debt uh, that led to despair, um, uh, fighting, uh, you name it, it was there. Uh, our village headsman in two different neighborhoods that we lived in uh, was, in where was imprisoned. One for, for trying to haul 229,000 methamphetamine tablets down to Bangkok. And so he got shipped down to Bangkok and we never saw him again. Um, and so, I mean, we, we saw this with our eyes. I mean, in a period of six months, uh, we saw three suicides in our village. Uh, one guy beating himself in the head with a, a stick and then drinking, um, drinking weed killer and seeing his wife and his child just grieve over his decision to do that uh, there in the hospital. Um, another guy hanging himself out on a mango tree. Uh, another guy shooting himself. And so my kids, my wife, again, they, we saw these things. Um, and they left these, these, uh, the scars in our hearts, in our minds. Uh, and it, it, this whole conference, you know, our hope for the plong, there was a real sense of hopelessness. Uh, in these villages. They're desperate for the gospel. And this is what, this is what brought me to, to uh, this point in my life where my teammates were gone. God, I want to see, yes, you're doing something here on a local level, and I'm seeing people come to faith in Christ, and we're establishing and bringing them together to form a local church. But God, I want to see this done on a comprehensive level. And, uh, and so how do we do that? Well, it began with, um, it began with the scripture. Uh, me crying out before the Lord saying, God, how do we do this? We need your wisdom. How do we impact the Palong on a comprehensive level and not just on a local level? And, uh, and I, I came to a passage, in, the, in a minute I'm going to show you a video, uh, came to a passage in Second Chronicles 17 and talked about the story of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat uh, was a king that implemented a strategy to institute spiritual reform on a national level, and it became of great encouragement to me. And three of the questions that it really answered was who, what, and where. Uh, who, who, was going to s who were we going to send? Uh, what were we going to do? And where were we going to send them? And uh, as the video explains in a minute, um, uh, it became a very important part of our strategy. And what we found was is that the, the, tri the triage, right, the triage of local partners who were there living in Myanmar, and these partners were made up of different ethnic minority groups, 
stateside partners, these churches just like Hoffmantown and, uh, and these churches, and then the missionaries themselves, it formed a strength and partnership that, uh, that was very, very valuable in our attempt and our strategy to reach the Palong. And um, over the past five years, we've been training national partners. This was our, one of our first meetings. This is about 35 uh, folks who were from different ethnic minority groups uh, eager to, and this was people who, according to Matthew chapter 9 and 10, our responsibility is to pray, right? But who calls people out for the harvest? God does, right? And God was calling these different people out. They didn't know how to do it. They didn't know other people even had an interest. But as we began networking and, so, and, and, and working with and seeing these different people who had an interest, we called them together and began training them every year uh, with simple and reproducible uh, church planning methodology and disciple-making disciple methodology. And, um, and so uh, these were the men and women that God uh, were, were going to use to get into these areas that we had no access to. And, um, and so uh, here's a little bit video uh, that talks about this process. About nine years ago, our family was serving in a church in Dallas, Texas. God was showing favor in our work, our ministry, our church. At the time, I was reading through the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. One of the verses just jumped out at me. God said, my sheep have wandered through the mountains and the hills, yet no one has gone looking for them. No one has gone searching for them. From that point on, we knew that God was calling us specifically to take the gospel to the Palong people living in Myanmar, China, and Thailand. And so for the first five years, we just began studying language, culture, demographic studies on the Palong people. God began raising up these different people who we considered people of peace. One of those young men was a man named Jom Sang. We just began seeing this hunger for the gospel. God just worked through his family. Where there was no church, now there's a church. Where there was no pastor, now Jomsang is responding to the gospel call on his life. At the same time, we also began developing a lot of relationships with national partners. Partners are made up of so many different ethnic minority groups. You have Kachin, you have Chin and Karin, Chinese, Shan, Burmese, Thai, uh, and it's a beautiful picture of just the diversity within God's family. Early in our time on the field, we knew that we could not do this alone. How were we going to have an impact on Palong ministry if we had no presence there? In 2 Chronicles chapter 17, it talks about Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat did what no other king did before him. He sent out missionaries to each part of his kingdom. And this was the first mission of its kind. It helped me clarify in my mind how we could impact the work among the Palong, both in Burma, in Thailand, in China. He answered the questions of who, what, and where. Jehoshaphat sent out his officials, his Levites, and his priests. We began thinking of all these stateside partnerships that we developed over the years in the states, these churches that felt the same call to the Palong people as we did. These are the folks that could impact the work among the Palong on a Palong national level. The Word of God in the Palong language was just now being released. We were to take the Word of God, the Palong New Testament, and just take it to every city uh, among the Palong. Where were we supposed to go? Where are our national partners located? We began to see nine specific areas among the Palong emerge. We wanted to invite our national partners and our stateside churches where we began focusing on these nine strategic areas. So our desire is for you as stateside church partners to join hands with our national partners to devise a strategy together to reach your specific adopted area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're at a point in our work among the Palong where in partnership with you as our stateside churches, in partnership with our national partners, we believe that God is going to move like he never has before in the past. So this was, uh, this, was, this was not our strategy, this was God's strategy, and we believe that there's strength in partnership uh, because of the diversity of gifts. Um, you have, uh, on the one hand, the West, the stateside churches who come with a rich history, uh, a rich Christian history, right, and the, the resources necessary to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, which we're uh, to be good stewards of. You have in the East this understanding of the culture and fluency of language by our, by our local partners. And then you have the missionaries who have their feet in both sides of the world, 
right, who have an understanding of language and culture, but also have these connections uh, to the stateside churches and of which they came out of and were sent by the local church. And so, again, this triage uh, became the strategy. Um, we, we picked these nine strategic prolonged cultural centers at that time based on three questions. We said, number one, where is God at work? If you've ever been through experiencing God, uh, you know that we, we, we look for God at work and we join him in what he's doing. And so we, we've asked that question and we just had a map in front of us and we said, okay, where do we see God at work? We had circle of place, circle of place, circle of place. The second question we say, well, where's the largest, uh, where's the heaviest, the most densely populated areas of Palong people? And so we just began uh, circling areas again. And then the third is, where do we have our natural entry points? Acts chapter 4 served as a reference for us. We know that Paul and Barnabas, when they, sent out, when they were sent out, they went first to where? Yeah, Cyprus, right? And they went to the island of Crete, right? And when they were there, uh, why did they go there? You ever ask the question? Well, Acts chapter 4 tells us that that's exactly where Barnabas was from. It was a natural entry point for them. And so they went there and began proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and saw some incredible things happen. So we got the map out again. We just started circling these places where our local partners were actually living. These were in areas that were blacklisted. They were completely off limits to foreigners where we could not travel to. And, uh, and these nine areas began to emerge as we saw these overlapping circles and we began to pick out these different places. Um, later, in a moment, you'll see a, a, a graph. As a matter of fact, here, uh, you could see just kind of our strategy in, uh, in diagram form. Um, you have the Myanmar partnering churches or the local partners that we have. On the, on the right, you see stateside partnering churches. And then you have our own sending churches as missionaries that are sending out uh, folks, just like Hoffmantown sent out Imre and Carol Goosen, right? Uh, sent out, and now they're a part of the Palong field team living on the field in partnership with both the stateside churches and the Myanmar partnering churches. Uh, what we don't have and what we're getting ready to establish are three main hubs by which we can train and send out apostolic church planning teams uh, that can engage the Palong in these specific areas. And, uh, and so uh, God is doing an incredible work. What now was, what, what then was nine churches has now become 16 churches. And what was nine areas, now we have 20 specific areas among the Palong that our national partners are now saying, listen, you can't just restrict it to these nine areas. Here's 20 areas. Here's some additional areas that we know where God is at work and where there are people living and where we want to go ourselves. And their vision is now becoming, uh, you know, tied into our vision, which is, a, a, again, a beautiful picture uh, of the diversity within God's people and God's intention, God raising up people and God sending them out in order that his name may be made known among the Palong people. And uh, one of the ways that uh, we actually get God's word, there was an old missionary couple, German couple, Herman and Margaret Jansen. By the time I got there, they had lived there for 35 years, uh, living in Burma, living among the Palong, uh, saw some of the first converts, and it actually wrote uh, a book about the first Palong convert woman uh, and all the persecution that followed after that. And, um, and so, but they, the, the New Testament at that time when we arrived had not even come out after 35 years. As a matter of fact, it came out uh, years later um, when I was there. I can remember the first conversation I had with this gentleman. I was like, you know, Herman, I, God called me here to work with the Palong. Uh, you know, he's from Germany, very cold, stoic, you know. And um, the first conversation, I said, like, just any resources that you can give me. I just want him, you know, so I could just educate myself. And he's very untrusting, you know. And I said, well, what, what can I do? And he said, go learn the language and come back and see me. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, give me, a, give me something, you know, that I can operate off of. And, uh, and he said, no. He said, just go study the language. And it was one of the best things that he ever told me. Um, because it was only when you knew the language and understood their culture that you could actually have a platform by which to speak into their lives. And, uh, and after that, after I learned the language and came back to him, you know, he began just giving me different resources. Um, but one of the things that became so important uh, as a part of our strategy was the word of God. We, we want the Word of God to be in a format, in a language, right, that they understood. Uh, but here's another challenge as a part of their culture. I mean, here's, here's a 90-plus percent uh, illiteracy rate among the Palong. 
well, how are they going to read the Bible? I mean, you have to have, it takes years for literacy programs to get off the ground. And we're certainly doing that, and they're doing that. Uh, they have a great literacy program where they're bringing people down to their center, and they're teaching them how to read and write the Palong language. And they've trained people in Myanmar to do the same thing. And so we're not discounting that. But here's an oral people. Uh, and so we took the Word of God, and in partnership with Faith Comes By Hearing, uh, spent literally three and a half months recording, but then eight months altogether through the editing process and everything, uh, you know, working on an audio version of the Palong New Testament by which we could give to these, these apostolic teams, right, who are sent into these different areas uh, to, with the sole intent of establishing listening groups. And so we equipped our national partners with them, and I don't know how many we've bought and have given away, uh, but they're just little solar-powered MP3. You guys are very familiar with them here because you have bought and purchased many of these and given to our team. Uh, but solar-powered MP3 players, which they have an internal and external memory drive. And, uh, and so on the internal memory, housing the whole complete New Testament in their own language. External memory, we put the, the audio version of the Jesus film. We put songs. We put testimonies. Uh, we put sermons and uh, discipleship lessons. We put a gospel presentation on there that they can le- learn and be reproduced. So all sorts of, of great things done uh, through these things. And we're still getting requests for uh, both the Reclaimer and we also use what's called the Papyrus device, which is another uh, similar device to this one. And so uh, God is using things like this and the recording of that uh, New Testament to impact people with the gospel. Um, And there's stories that come out of of things like this. Matter of fact, just one quick story. And uh, I'll take some questions here in just a second. But... uh, the very first young man that I had the privilege of leading to the Lord, this was the seventh year into our stay uh, in Thailand. And uh, he was actually the second, but he was a person of peace who God wanted to use. And, um, and I'd led him to the Lord. Of course, I would meet with him almost daily, just teaching him the word of God, working through things. He had such a hunger and desire to grow in the word of the Lord. His parents, very resistant to the gospel. Um, but his dad, who used to be a monk, uh, had been had been, had been trained to read and uh, the Shan language, which is a secondary language in Burma, and so uh, and some of the Pali script. But he didn't know how to read Thai. He didn't know how to read Palong, and uh, but he had a desire and he had this little foundation upon which he could learn how to read and write. Well, his son started teaching him how to read and write. Well, the only book they have in their language and uh, using the the script that they have was the Bible. And so his son began just teaching him the Bible, reading the Bible over and over, and his son taught him how to read and write Palong. Well, we also gave him the papyrus device uh, and the proclaimer, and he put it in his pocket. Every day he would go out into the fields and he would be working uh, his fields, and he would be listening to the Word of God over and over and over again. I could never forget the day that I was sitting there teaching John saying in his home, and his dad came in the door just like any other day. He put his stuff on the wall, hung his bag up. He walked into his room and he came out and he said, and at this point I had learned enough Palong language to understand what he said, but he, he said, John Sang, and he poked his head out of the room and he said, I believe. And that's all he said. And I was like, did he just say, I believe? What, is, what does he believe, you know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, his dad came out and sat down with him and told him as he was out in the field, he became heavily convicted that he needed a relationship with this creator God. And, uh, and he said in that field, he just put his faith and trust in Jesus. And we had shared with him many times before this, you know, as well. Um, but on his own, and it was his, it was his grandson's birthday. It was the day that his, his grandson was born. And he never forgets that. He said that there was birth in his family, but there was spiritual rebirth in his own life. And just a powerful way of how God uses the word of God right, to impact a person's life. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us in the process if only we're willing. And, uh, and so uh, tomorrow I'm going to be sharing just story after story of what God did in John Sang's family life through video and testimony and, uh, and the work that's being done in Myanmar right now through some supernatural events in one of the cities up in Namsan. There was a fire that destroyed half the city. 400 homes, 200 homes were burned down. Not one person died. God's mercy. Uh, And it gave us access into this town, which is the heart of Palong culture and the most affluent of all Palong people, which I believe God can do something through that group of men uh, that will extend on through the rest of um, the rest of the Palong population.
and, uh, and then also internally displaced peoples. The fighting still going on in these restricted accessed areas. More than 5,000 internally displaced people, Palong people, are now living in Chow Mai, where we just happen to have three couples living and working. And so God is bringing them to us that we can't have access to, but also God is raising up laborers to be sent into these areas in order that they may hear the gospel for most of the time, the very first time in their life. And, uh, and thankfully, we have the word of God uh, that we can give to them, and we have people who know the language that can share with them uh, verbally and orally the message of Jesus Christ. So we're grateful for your partnership and are so thankful that God is using Hoffmantown to partner with us in taking the gospel uh, to these people who so desperately need it and who are hopeless without our availability and willingness to go and share the gospel to them. And so thank you very much. You guys have any questions and answers? We've got a few minutes left here. Uh, open to any, any questions you may have. Right now we are here. We feel God has called us back for a season in our life. Um, when, we, uh, when we are on the field and we were wrestling with some of these things coming back, there were a lot of different circumstances. Uh, ultimately, God led us back through his word again uh, in the book of Philippians, as a matter of fact, Philippians chapter 1. And um, it was the first time, there's a lot of firsts, uh, first time in our life that mom and dad, we sensed that they needed help as well. Matter of fact, uh, three weeks after we got back, my mother-in-law passed away from cancer. And um, that, was, that was a difficult time. Um, but my mom and dad also have cared for a handica my handicapped sister for 30-something years now. They're getting to an age uh, where they desperately need help. She's completely uh, incapacitated. It's, she's almost vegetable state. Uh, for 33 years, they have given care and love for her. Uh, it was the first time that my pastor had extended a call, any pastor had extended a call for us to come back and serve on staff. Uh, these things, by no stretch of the imagination, even our parents passing away, uh, are not sufficient in and of themselves to bring us back off the field. Um, but God, it perked our, our interest, piqued our interest. As a matter of fact, um, our friends in Asia, Asia context, family is very significant, very important. And so for, for children not to respond to cries of help from their parents, that's significant to them and is a, a testimony. Uh, and so they were all saying, you need to go. You need to go, you know. And we're like, we just want to hear from the Lord. Uh, we obviously, we want to go. We love our parents, and uh, we want to be with them. Um, but we needed to hear from the Lord and just confirmation that that's exactly where he wanted us to be. Uh, part, of the, part of the sacrifice and call of any missionary uh, is to say that, you know, father, mother, sister, brother, you know, God is most important in our life. We'll have the privilege and the opportunity to see my mom and dad in heaven, right, and spend eternity with them. But the people who haven't heard the gospel, um, they, yeah, we want them there as well. And so, um, but anyway, so we're here for two years, leave of absence, and uh, after which time we're just going to have to decide whether or not we go back to the field. We have a, we have a position available for us um, so we can go back uh, but whether or not God desires for us to go back at that time is a question yet to be answered so we're going to mobilize as many people as we can and, and we've already got a trip planned in June and a, a trip planned in November so we're going to be mobilizing and going ourselves uh, until God redirects us uh, as he pleases yeah you had a question there Well, yeah, we'll, we'll be going in June to Burma and then November again to Burma around the Kalaw area. Uh, as opposed to just going through uh, the villages just really quickly, uh, these trips we're going to go in and just stay in one village and just spend the whole time just walking through uh, scripture and discipleship plans. No, tourist visa is pretty easy to get. You just get it through Washington. Uh, they actually have e-visas now as long as you go through a main port. And so that being uh, Yangon or Mandalay. And so, um, so if you if you want to travel in any of the the borders, the open borders, like say um, along the Thai Myanmar border, they have three different borders that you can have, uh, you can enter into the country with. Uh, you can't get an e visa that way. You actually have to apply and have your visa in your passport to enter into those ports, which we're going to do. We'll go through. We'll fly into Chiang Mai, drive up three and a half hours to the border, and cross there, and take a one hour flight into uh, some of these areas. It seems to be a little bit easier.
plus I get to see all the folks that we've ministered with along the way. Uh, initial trip, just my wife and I, uh, the first trip, the second trip in November, we're going to be having about eight uh, people go, uh, and primarily for logistical reasons, just to travel, uh, the different vehicles that you have to take. Um, you could have larger groups, but it draws unwanted attention by the military police. So, And the country of Myanmar is opening up since 2011. They've been, uh, they're moving towards a more democratic, a matter of fact, they have a, they've just elected a president in March. Uh, of this year, and um, Aung San Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy uh, won the elections and now, uh, you know, elected a president, and so, but uh, still, uh, you won't see uh, complete freedom until you see these areas open up, uh, and that's the difficulty that they're facing. Uh, Again, 70, 75% of the country is still blacklisted, and so when that opens up, then that becomes a real victory for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, friends, friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. They desperately want to go with us, though. Yeah. They're dying to go back. They love it, miss it. They grew up there. That's all they know. They were, again, five, four, three, and two when we left, and two were born there. So they come back here, and this is a strange world, you know. <laughs> strange place. Yeah, and, 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 as, and, and along that same lines, pray, f- pray for my kids. It's, you know, they're, they're coming back, and we're where in that culture, and we saw all the drugs prevalent and the, just the, the destruction that it left, and it was so apparently obvious that it was evil. Uh, and coming back here, it's made so glamorous and as a part of acceptance. And my kids have been offered drugs numerous times, and so pray for their strength, pray for their resolve. Um, you know, and it's, it's tough, but just, yeah, discernment, exactly right, to know right from wrong. I don't know, but see, that's, that's the difficulty for mission kids, uh, missionary kids. I mean, we lived in a place where they were isolated from social uh, networks, and so here they're weighing out, you know, being accepted in a culture that they know nothing about uh, and, um, you know, something looking so glamorous. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, just a, it's just a tough balance. So there's a, there's a false notion, I think, um, you know, about missionary families um, that, you know, mom and dad are missionaries, your kids are going to be passionate about the gospel, well, the same grace that was displayed to me has got to be the same grace that is shown to them. And so, you know, what I want to help people understand is that, well, here are these kids. They, they had no Christian friends. The only people that they knew as Christians were people who uh, were just led to the Lord. So they were very new believers and very weak in their faith. Or they were lost and they were steeped in animism and Buddhism. And, and so that was the people that they made friends with. And so, and they were in a spiritually dark environment, very uh, oppressive. Um, and so, just some of these, some of these challenges uh, for our children. It would be really interesting at some point to just hear a testimony like that from, from a missionary child. Mm. Somebody who grew up in yeah. this environment. And, you know, like you said, coming mm. back, it's like, I, I would, you know, yeah, we come here and we can't believe that. Mm. And then I'm going into something and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. It really would. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Wow. I'll, I'll be looking it up, yeah. Maybe we should do one called Growing Up Men. Plural. Greg Mann, man's last name. Little joke there. Any other questions you guys have? Yeah. We did. Yeah. Uh, there was two sets of changes. One change was how the American culture has changed just socially and um but then the change that God did in our own hearts. And so it's a double change. Um, you know, God, God caused us to be less interested in, in some of the things that people may be interested here in. Um, I think that's, that's one of the things that when we came back, we were, um, you know, just challenged by was um, not the, uh, the apparent apathy of people towards the lostness 
around them, not, not even internationally, um, but just the, the relative uh, apathy. And, and that's not being judgmental anyway. I just feel like, um, you know, that's what, our, that's what our lives were about there. And it, uh, the lostness was apparent. Here it's hidden. It, it's actually, it's not even hidden anymore. I mean, it's, you, we, we desperately need Jesus to do something in the life of our culture. Um, and, and just uh, our government sh- shows that right now. You know, it's just indicative and reflective of, of our, our turning away from God. That's exactly right. Helping them make that association. That's a good, good insight. That's right. It's not gold-covered image, you know, with stone or wood, but yeah, there are certainly other things that, yeah. That's right. Yeah, almost. That's right. Good observation. Uh, animism is a, uh, is a spiritual belief. Uh, it's, a, it's a belief, a religion. It's a separate religion, but um, it's a belief that uh, there are spirits in everything, and there are good spirits, and there are evil spirits. And so all the, all the animist sees is what he sees around him. And so that means if I have bad health, that means if I have poor crops, that means if I have bad relationships, uh, these things mean that some evil spirit, right, is really angry at us. And so they make sacrifices in order to appease the spirit. Now, if everything's going well, then they want to make sacrifices in order to appease the good spirits. And they want them to continue showing favor to their family. And so uh, animism is, is purely a manipulation of power. And so uh, gospel proclamation to an animist approaches it from a kingdom of God perspective, right? That God holds all authority and all power and that he, his power is greater. Uh, and we don't discount the fact that there are spirits. I mean, the Bible proclaims it very clearly. Um, what we do say, though, is that, that God is triumphant and is ruler and is sovereign and is the authority over all that exists, even the evil spirits that are now in this world. Yes, sir. Just the Ruching Palong, which is the silver Palong. Um, yeah, so Ruching is the is the linguistic term for the silver uh, Palong, which is the majority Palong people. That's about it makes up about eight hundred thousand of the Palong, and uh, the other subgroups making up the rest uh, of the three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand. Wycliffe, there's a current uh, Bible translation in, uh, being done in the Rumai, and there was one being done in the Golden, but there's some, ha- some circumstances that happened to uh, the girl from Hong Kong, Wycliffe, uh, who was working on that translation, some friction, and she ended up going back. And so now, the, now we have none of. But in Rumai, there is a translation currently being done. Uh, very beginning stages. Yeah, matter of fact, one of the partnering churches in California uh, is, uh, is, is kind of spearheading that whole project uh, of the Rumai Palong Bible Translation and, and is underwriting a large portion of that. And so, again, partnering church is just the strength and the, the resources available. Might be good for us to have a little conversation about yes. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. I just met with a, uh, a representative from the seed company. As a matter of fact, Tony Pintanello, though he's focused more on the uh, Middle East, uh, he was a good friend of mine who was actually a missionary serving with the IMB in Cambodia and a uh, great linguist. And uh, anyway, he, uh, he kind of planted, no pun intended, seeds in my own heart for working with the seed company. So, yeah, it's a great company. Yeah, a great organization. Got a lot of, a lot of funding, too. So. People are passionate about getting the word of God translated into the languages, so praise God. And very creative. They've been very creative for years in trying to uh, accelerate the translation process. Into the, especially into the minor. Definitely. There's about 18 more groups that they have zero scripture. Yeah. They're really focusing on the oral, the oral translation. Yeah, amen. These are all very small, 2,000. Yeah, that's right, or less, yeah.
Mm, yeah. I think, was it, wasn't it you, Rex? Uh, was it Rex? Yeah, you were showing me that whole list of, of uh, Papua New Guinea tribes, you know, I mean, just uh, hundreds and hundred pages. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Amazing. Yes, sir. Definitely. Yeah, depending on where you go in the Shan state of Myanmar, um, you'll run into folks who, it depends on where the military is located and where they set up camp and base. Around Kalal, it's a heavily militar militarized uh, area, and so a lot of the people speak as a second language Burmese, which is a national language. But anywhere east of there and northeast of there, uh, most people speak Shan as a secondary language, which is the, the state in which they live. And they can't, they don't even understand Burmese. So, but in both of those languages, we do have gospel resources. So, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. The Palong are unique in the sense that uh, as a part of their oral history, uh, they do not accept truth from anything but their own language, which is, which is, it's not, that's not always true. But for the Palong, I've heard numerous times um, that, you know, that's not valid because that's not our own language. And, um, and so I remember reading a missionary story, you know, a book that says God speaks our own language, you know, and when they came out with the, the I think it was the Balagao people of the Philippines or something like that. Um, but anyway, yes. It's really true when the foreigners come in and they bring a God from America. Yeah, Western religion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it's in their own language. That's exactly right. Yeah, we've heard numerous stories of people who have either heard the proclaimer uh, or people who have heard radio broadcasting that's being done through shortwave radio uh, via the Far Eastern Broadcasting Company. We have weekly, uh, we have uh, daily programs that run for about 15 minutes uh, that we've been supporting for years uh, that uh, both us and the, the German couple who did Bible translation have been broadcasting of people coming to faith by hearing Yes, matter of fact, uh, one man, if you, yeah, I know we got to go, but one man named Ali uh, met him about six months before we came home, and Ali had served as a porter, a guy who carries the supplies for the Shan army, not the Burma army, but the Shan army, and then eventually became one of their soldiers. He was Palong, and while he was in a Shan camp, uh, he heard his own language coming over uh, shortwave radio. And uh, he never knew what it was, but he began, it began piquing his interest. Well, during that time in the jungle, he developed a incurable skin disease of which his wife left him, his second wife left him. Nobody wanted to touch him. He fled and went into Thailand because he heard that maybe he could have medical help. And, uh, and again, found his way down to our town in Qingdao. Uh, where we proclaimed the gospel to him. And he said, when I was in that jungle and I heard that message for the first time, he said, I knew it was the truth, but I didn't know how to, I didn't understand, I didn't know what I needed to do. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ, was baptized before we came back. Yeah, powerful, powerful. Just one story of just many that God is <laughs> in his miraculous ways of drawing people to himself. Praise God. Let me pray for us, okay? I know it's, it's lunchtime. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, where we can come proclaim not anything and boast of anything that we have done, Lord, save that which is from Jesus Christ and him alone. God, thank you so much for just using people in your, in your work, Father God, uh, to declare your name among the nations. Father, we are humbled, and God, we rejoice and delight in, in doing your will, Father God. Lord, cause us to seek your face, Lord. Help us to keep our lives pure, Lord, so that we might be vessels of honor, which you pull off the shelf and use for your glory. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.